Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at Clora.com. I'm excited to welcome two guests from Carbon Biosciences, Joel Schneider, President and CEO, and Robert Cotton, co-founder at Carbon. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Great. So Joel, to kick us off, you are a repeat guest. Talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. And thanks, Rule, for having us and having me again. So I'm Joel. I'm Carbon CEO. I've been with the company now for, for just about six months, formerly the chief operating officer and chief technology officer of a, a gene therapy company called Solid Biosciences. I'm a, a muscle and stem cell biologist by training, and I've been in the biotech industry for the last 10 years or so. Fundamentally, the reason that I was incredibly excited about the opportunity to join the Carbon team was to leverage all of the learnings that I've experienced being intimately involved in the gene therapy space for a rare disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and to think about how the technology that Rob and the Carbon team were beginning to innovate on could be used to meaningfully advance the field. I think in the last decade, we've seen tremendous success with AAV-based viral gene therapies, and Rob will certainly talk more about the AAV viruses and how we're working on a differentiated but related family of vectors. Alongside those successes, I think we've also seen a number of challenges related to tropism or affinity for tissues. We've seen immune challenges, the ability to re-administer vector to patients. We've also seen challenges due to the packaging size of the recombinant AB viruses. And I think the platform that we're developing at Carbon systematically can answer and overcome a number of these interesting challenges and obstacles, leveraging all the advances that we've made in the AAV field. And so for myself, joining biotech directly out of my postdoctoral work at Harvard, it's been a, a great experience to watch the AAV field evolve and now to work with Rob, who's been intimately involved in the space for a while now, to try and develop new therapies, beginning with a really novel viral gene therapy approach for cystic fibrosis. But happy to elaborate more as we, as we chat. Yeah, great. And Joel, this is your first time being in the CEO seat at a biotech. Curious how that experience has been for you. And also perhaps, you know, one of the more non-obvious learnings of being in this seat that you hadn't thought about before. I think it's actually been a, a really organic process for me. I'm, I'm really fortunate that Rob allows me to, to join and engage in many of our scientific conversations. And so on a daily basis, I probably spend 75 to 80% of my time still on technical topics. And I'm really gracious about the fact that I get to spend that time because it helps me think more holistically about the business and how to grow it as I have this intimate knowledge of how things are evolving within the company. For me, I think I've always really enjoyed being at the hub of many connected areas of company growth and company sustainability. And so for me, the transition to the CEO role was a bit of a natural transition because I love being at the center and being able to connect all the diverse areas that we need to grow and develop if we're going to be successful. So on a daily basis, I get to engage with our early research platforms Think about how that's going to be translated and conduit into our platform development capabilities. And even today, joined a clinical development conversation with a great KOL that our head of non-clinical pharmacology has brought on. So for me, it really gets to very selfishly allow me to engage in sort of that center spoke of being involved in 
all the critical areas that I think we need to develop as we move the company forward. Thanks, Joel. And Robert, over to you, please. Just talk to us about the arc of your career and all the things that you've seen along the way. I'll try to somewhat more selective than that. <laughs> Started working on AAV when I joined Ken Burns's lab at Cornell University Medical College as a postdoc in 1986. And I stayed in the AAV field ever since then. Most of the time, it was at the National Institutes of Health as a first a tenure-tracked investigator, then a tenured investigator, and for 20 years until I left there to go into biotech in 2014. Wonderful place to start or finish a career. Mid-career, it's sort of limiting because the groups are somewhat restricted in size. But regardless, the resources and support were fantastic. We did a number of, I think, critically important vectorology. We mostly studied AAV as a virus, but and that led us to vectorize these four and five, which were the first non-AAV2 vectors ever produced. And that sort of opened the floodgate for all these new capsids. And we also realized that we could not produce sufficient qualities of recombinant AAV by transient transfection. So we invented a process that utilizes the invertebrate SF9 cell line and baculovirus, and that the NIH licensed to Biomarin, Unicure, and other places that have led to approved products and clinical studies. When I decided to leave NIH, it was because I could have stayed for another 20 years, and it's like a dream job because never had to write a grant and funding for life. But there were things that we just couldn't do. And one of those was we could not really develop our the gene therapy programs beyond some basic work. And I left to go to a biotech. It was one of the first employees of Voyager Therapeutics, which is an AAV-based gene therapy company in Cambridge. Also, I had a contemporaneous appointment at UMass Medical School as an affiliate professor and continued to some of the more fundamental projects in AAV research. And that's ongoing now. Some of that work from NIH and UMass led us to an invention of was licensed to a company called Generation Bios. I was a co-founder of that non-viral gene therapy. And I stayed there for about two and a half years and left and formed a company that utilized incubator space at UMass Med School called Synteny Therapeutics, which was to develop the autonomous parvoviruses as gene therapy vectors. We did some work on that, but after almost two years, we started in March 2020, the start of the pandemic, and timing's everything in this business, and realized that we could not sustain it ourselves and contacted one of the partners at Longwood Funds who said the timing's amazing. They had been talking to John Englehart at the University of Iowa who had been a pioneer in vectorizing the human Boca virus, which has this exquisite tropism for airway epithelium. Um, it's an autonomous parvovirus that fit very well in what Synteny had been doing. So we said, let's start a company. So started Carbon. And even though Boca virus is the lead program, the other autonomous parvoviruses are part of the pipeline. So anyway, that's how I wound up at Carvin. I was very excited. Joel, thanks for the kind comments. But when Joel appeared on the horizon, we, we just grabbed him. It's rare to have a CEO 
that has the scientific understanding, but also the clinical development and other experiences at Solid, which is, we really appreciate the confidence he has in us and also his familiarity with the drug development, in fact, gene therapy development. Great. Thanks, Robert. Given all that you've seen over the last couple of years, would love to hear from you how the AAB field has changed over the last 10 years or so, and perhaps, you know, opportunities that you see along the way as well. Yeah. So first decade or two of AV gene therapy, it was a lot of companies and labs pretty much saying the manufacturing wasn't an issue. And it clearly was, and it still is an issue. It's a terminal process. The genes required to make AV are introduced transiently, which is remains a problem. Bacillovirus does it very well. There are people that have been very successful using SF9 cells and others who have not been. So manufacturing quality effect has improved enormously. The capsid engineering combinatorial libraries have, I think, resulted in a lot of interesting candidates for, and some of them actually have made it into the clinic as well. There's recently been more interest in mechanism of action, meaning how does the viral particle enter a cell and what influence does that have on gene expression. And we've seen a lot of interesting reports with AAV in that respect. There seems to be a crowded space for clinical development. There are coding capacity, prevalence of diseases, routes of administration, doses, limits the diseases that are tractable with AAV. But with these new, some of these new capsids, they have better transcytotic activity across the blood-brain barrier, perhaps better than the benchmark AAV9, maybe, maybe not. We'll see once it becomes more generalized. So I think the manufacturability being able to, of AAV has improved considerably, still is a challenge, but that has led to a lot more clinical development opportunities. I was going to add a perspective from the development side as well. I think Rob really covered the manufacturing evolution. And he also highlighted the fact that we now have hundreds of clinical trials ongoing, testing various routes of administration and various AAB capsids for a multitude of indications. And what that's leading us to is just a tremendously better understanding of this circular nature where we design novel candidates, we test them in the clinic, and then at Carbon, we are certainly one of the companies that has the opportunity to advance a next generation of capsids based on all those learnings. You know, I think we understand more today about where viral vectors go after we administer them than we ever did before. We know more about how to think about patient enrollment from an immunogenicity perspective. And I think for myself, in my last company, one of the earliest hats I rolled was at war was as a scientific analyst within the organization. Every paper you read was, you know, started with the AV vectors or a non-pathogenic set of viruses, dot, 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 dot. And I think what we've learned is that while these vectors hold tremendous promise, we certainly need to be cognizant of the fact that when you administer trillions of particles to a patient, you do need to understand what happens immunologically. Manufacturing purity and quality certainly plays a role in it, but also patients' prior exposures and the type of gene we're administering and you know the expected response against the protein as an example. So I think the manufacturing side has evolved. And I think the breadth of investment that's led to such clinical exposure is allowing companies like us to really now think creatively about how to explore a broader library of viruses building on you know some of the limitations and the challenges that we see in the space. Yeah, Joel, that's a great point. And an extension of that, since you've been in the space for some time, 
How has the sentiment from a financing perspective changed as it relates to gene therapy over the last five years or so? I think that when I engage with investors or, or have conversations with pharma or other biotechs, there is a strong desire for a better class of viral delivery vehicles, for an improved class of viral delivery vehicles. I think the rationale behind what we're trying to do, which really is identify and rationally build vectors from viruses that have evolved over millions of years, is intrinsically relying on the fact that we're looking for viruses that overcome some of these limitations that we've seen. So viruses with exquisite tropism, like the lung tropic virus that, that we're developing with our lead, or viruses that increase our packaging capacity, which means we can think about optimized payloads or single vectors for gene editing deliveries, or exploring viruses that have not been found to replicate or naturally or naturally be resident in humans. So looking at other species. And so when, when I engage with investors or pharma, they really understand the mission and the goal of what we're trying to achieve and are, are looking forward, I think, to hopefully partner with us in the future as we achieve technical success. I do think, though, that the burden or the hurdle for inflections has increased. And so I think that when I engage with investors, they're certainly looking for large animal data that suggests that it's immunologically safe, but it also can get into the tissues of, of interest. They're also looking for a very clear development path. Pre-IND meetings and opening INDs don't hold the same value inflection that they may have a few years ago. Investors are certainly looking for early stage clinical data as a very meaningful inflection and indicative attraction for the organization. So they intuitively understand what we're trying to achieve and I think are looking for clear inflections that exceed what we've achieved so far with the AAV vectors. But I would say a ton of optimism for what we're trying to bring to the table. Wonderful. So that's a great jumping off point. Let's talk about what you're working on at Carbon Now, where you are from a company building perspective and areas of focus. I'll give the corporate composition and Rob would love for you to actually, you should dive in on technology. But one of the most exciting parts for us is that Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which invested in our Series A, has actually given us lab space as well. And so our scientists have been able to get a leg up and accelerate our internal development efforts because we have this early stage space. And so we're incredibly appreciative of that. Rob and I have been really focused on the build out of the technical teams. So what we need to demonstrate that we can mature the platform, and that as we mature the platform, there's a development path based on the folks that we've brought on. So we've got great heads of process development and analytical development, very strong head of non-clinical pharmacology. We also have a fantastic program manager, which I can't underscore as being critical, who has a PhD in virology. So couldn't get better than that for us. A very strong focus on building out the technical teams and technical leadership. And all these folks have been in this sort of space before and know what we need to do to have success. But I'll hand it to Rob to share with you a little bit more about the technology and, and the platform that we're developing. Yeah. So I just want to a short preface to the autonomous parvovirus is that there's every few minutes is another announcement of a next best AEV capsid that's based on either combinatorial libraries, peptidic insertions, or other modifications. But basically, these are all iterations, and these come up with astronomical numbers of theoretical new capsids. Basically, these are iterations of a prototypic primate AAV capsid. And what we'd like to consider is that if we can extend or expand the genetic diversity by these, as you all said, distantly related viruses, could you imagine what kind of possibilities could result from these new vectors? And I can't, it's almost limitless. And all the 
learnings from the AV libraries and engineering and vectorization could be applied to each genus of these autonomous parvoviruses, including Boca virus and other ones that are in the pipeline. So potential is very exciting. Until we vectorize them, we probably can't say what the utility will be, but there's no doubt there will be applications that will develop. So going back to now where we are at carbon is that we're building internal manufacturing capabilities, developing assays and using for airway tropism, they develop these polarized air liquid interface using primary human cells. And it's not an organoid, but it's close to that, that it develops the differentiated cells with mucus secreting cells, ciliated cells, all of the five different cell types that are found in the airway. These can be evaluated for transduction gene expression and with the TR mutant cell lines for restoration of chloride conductance using electrophysiological methods. As Joel said, we're very fortunate to have be guests at the F Foundation Labs who have amazing experience in these areas and are helping transfer the technology and train carbon people. So we're getting up to speed very, very quickly in these areas. So we're very excited about the LEAD program, but also about what is following on with the other vectors in the platform. And I have a question related somewhat to culture, specifically when you're working in an area that has had a lot written about it. There's certainly a tremendous amount of hype associated with gene therapy. How have you guys gone about building out the team so that you're striking that balance of people that have been there? and done that with also new approaches, perhaps to learn from failures that others may have had? It's a great question. I think for us, it goes back to the, the underlying principles of how we're thinking about this novel class of vectors. And so what we're doing is it's incredibly technically challenging, and it's very novel in many ways. But what we're trying to do is harvest and, and harness these viruses that have never been explored and make them into therapeutic vectors that, from a mechanistic perspective, behave essentially identically to how the AAV vectors that we're currently using in the clinic behave. And so the way that we package payloads in these novel viruses uses very similar molecular tools. And the manufacturing methods that we're using are scalable and manufacturing methods that have been scaled for AAV-based technologies. And so for us, there's almost a very clear bifurcation where we need very strong molecular biologists and virologists that are going to help us build and innovate on the platform side. But we also need experienced drug developers that have taken complex biologics into through IND enabling and pharmacology studies and into the clinic and experienced AAV manufacturers. So we actually need to be spread across both. I think one of our key challenges, but also an area that I think we're doing a pretty good job in, is making sure that all of those folks have very good conduits in the office and meetings to regularly engage with one another and work together. Because as we're, we're so early right now, that things that come at a platform, literally the next day could be going into our process development team's hands. And so we need both sides. We need innovators that really understand the latest and most cutting edge tools at our disposal, but also need folks that really understand how to take and translate novel technologies and innovation into promising therapeutic approaches. And Joel, a follow-up question related to the current environment. So, you know, there's obviously a correction underway in biotech and more broadly across nearly all sectors right now. I'm curious, what should other leaders be 
thinking about right now, specifically in biotech, given the macro environment and how that's informing how you're navigating the current landscape as well? I think at Carbon, because we've brought on experienced that you know are strong in all the areas I just highlighted, we're trying to leverage them to grow the company at a very natural and organic pace. So very focused on the growth trajectory of the company, bringing on resources when we really need them. You know, we don't want anybody working 300% of the time or 300% past their capabilities. We also don't want people working at 50% of their capacity. Given the environment that we're in, leveraging the opportunity to bring on consultants and work with folks in a paradigm and in a way that leverages our capital and our experience set and external parties' experiences as effectively as possible. That's not just a shill for Clara, but the reality of the situation is that I do think we need to be very responsible in how we grow the team and you know really build it in a way that justifies the growth curve. So I don't think you'll see Carbon doing any empire building or you know massive buildouts beyond the scope of what we can handle. That being said, on the financing side, I also think that we're going to be very opportunistic with the way that we finance the company, and so. Obviously, you know, doing rounds of private financing and thinking about what happens after that is certainly one trajectory for the way to grow us. But I also think this is a perfect environment to identify early stage, non-dilutive research partnerships that accelerate the adoption of our platform too. So finding thought partners that can synergize with our platform, bring new technologies to the forefront, or have really important infrastructures that we can leverage to accelerate our paths forward. So I think it's being humble in your growth trajectory, growing the company at an organic and healthy pace, and then being opportunistic in the way that you finance an organization, being cognizant of all the different ways that we can do that, regardless of the environment. And the last thing I'll say on this is that I'm actually very bullish. And I think that the positive investor sentiment that I've seen means that as long as we're the technology that a company is developing has you know, promise, has a translational rationale and can be readily utilized to develop promising therapies, I think there's a good way to finance an organization. Great. Thanks, Joel. And I owe you a beer. Thanks for the plug. I'm curious to hear from both of you on over the next 20, 30 years or so, what are particular opportunities as it relates to gene therapy that really excite you? And perhaps even an articulation of some of the challenges that the field may face along the way to fulfill its promise. Rob, I'll let you go first. So when you would take that one, Joel, boy, what we want to see and the way gene therapy will gain, become more financially accessible or economically accessible is by not only treating, developing therapies for monogenic, rare monogenic disorders, but more commonly idiopathic or acquired diseases that will reduce the, increase the number of potential patients and reduce the cost of goods, and then treat real diseases that affect a larger sector of the population, like congestive heart failure, for example, or oncology is an example which had I don't think would have predicted that CAR immunotherapies, CAR Ts, would have achieved such success relatively quickly. Everything fit together: the theory, the in vitro studies, and the preclinical studies, and in the clinic, having a more generalizable platform than monogenetic diseases, which are have a true unmet need. And it's and some of them, even though they're called rare, are still fairly common in the uh, population. Great. Joel, anything you'd like to add on that point? I think Rob stole my uh, major <laughs> my major potential insight would have been, you know, seeing the scale at which we can manufacture these drugs really open the door for more accessible opportunities for larger indications. The other aspect I would highlight is that 
because we're in this cycle of innovation now where we're getting, we're going to see some BLAs in the gene therapy space. We're seeing a ton of clinical trial data. That's going to open the door for further improved vector designs. And someone recently told me that, I can't remember the name of the PI, but this notion of really beginning to think about vectors as chemical entities, not distinct from how we think about antibodies or small molecules, that's going to be really exciting when we can really begin to synthetically design these viruses in a way that doesn't their potential. I think with every advance that we make in evolving AAVs or designing, you know, doing these mutagenic approaches, there always today seems to still be some setbacks either in yields or neutralizing antibody profiles. And so I really look forward to the day where we can really have a CAD design program for designing a novel vector and can really think about creative de novo synthesis based off what we're seeing in nature and, and what we've learned from all the exposure that we're seeing in humans today. Thanks, Joel and Robert, for sharing your perspective on that point. To wrap up, given your disparate paths to getting to where you guys are today, would love if you could share you know, one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing what you now know. For me, I would say don't spread yourself too thin too quickly. So pick your priorities, enjoy those priorities, and have the conviction that you've picked the right ones. That's what I've got, Rob. Advice to my younger self. Well, with maturity comes a different perspective and disposition. I I think things worked out well, being risk-taking and being bold, trying to be creative. Don't do the same things everyone else is doing because you usually get the same answer or something very similar. So those are learnings from my past. I don't know what, just professionally, things worked out well. Sounds like it, Robert. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both for joining us today and for sharing a bit about the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Carbon Biosciences. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks, Raul. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.